0: I speak to you in the name of our one God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. Well, if I had to name this passage in the Gospel of Luke, I wouldn't call it the prodigal son. First off, the word prodigal doesn't appear in the text, as you probably noticed, or at least in our translations. And I know that if you look through the text, you'll find pretty much the meaning of prodigal, when it talks about how the younger son squandered all his property in dissolute living. But here's the real issue. I don't think the younger son is actually the main focus of the text. Neither is the other son, for that matter, the one who is faithful to his father. So I also wouldn't call this text the story of the faithful son. Both sons occupy space in this gospel only in relation to the father. There would be no story about the sons without the father. And if you focus too much on the sons, you could end up thinking about the good son and the bad son. And that good-bad dichotomy does not transform lives. That kind of good, bad thinking is fundamentally harmful, in fact, to our relationship with Jesus and to one another. Sadly, some of you may know this from prior tradition and church experiences, so I'm not going to name this parable in relationship to either one of the sons. So, what are the other options? Well, if you look at the first line of the parable, it says, There was a man. There was a man. It tells us this is about a man who is the father. Amy Jill Levine, the noted New Testament scholar and Vanderbilt professor, says she might call this story the man who lost his sons. That's pretty good, actually. Both sons are lost, each in his own way, one far off and one actually right in the house. And that's worth thinking about. But in any event, there was a man. And even while it could be any man, our tradition invites us to see this man as God in the parable. And since I do not believe that God can be captured in one gender or one parent role like father, I would simply, could simply call this story about God. Well, fine, but that's not very catchy if you hadn't noticed. Catchier would be Amy Jo Levine's title, The Absent Mother. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that that would be some sermon. I want to go a little more theological though. I could call this the story of our loving God. God doesn't question the younger son on his demand for his inheritance. God doesn't ground the younger son when he is rude and disrespectful to the father and to the village. God doesn't possess the son or try to stop him from making a mistake. And God waits patiently for the younger son to come to himself, as the text says. God waits patiently until the younger son realizes he's had enough of rejecting God and desires to return. And when God sees the son coming down the road, God is filled with compassion and runs out to meet him where he is, barely with one toe on the property. God celebrates when the son returns with the biggest possible party, protects the younger son from the shame of the return and the judgment of the village. This is love. This is love, God's love. The desire not to possess us, but to free us. The ability to wait patiently for us to return. And the meeting us where we are in our journey and protecting us from those who might do us harm. This is indeed the story of our loving God. I could also call it the forgiving God. When the younger son returned, God does not judge the way he has lived, working with pigs, which was forget, forbidden in the Jewish tradition, and which have therefore tainted the younger son. God does not ask, how did you spend your inheritance? God does not even actually wait for the son to ask for forgiveness before God is on that road in, with compassion to meet him. The text actually reads as if God interrupts the son's litany of repentance to begin the preparations for the party that welcomes him home. Because God knows what is in the heart of the son, and the son barely has to say anything to show that he is sorry. And God actually doesn't even ask for proof, doesn't ask for proof to show the change of heart. This is forgiveness. God's forgiveness, the desire to welcome us home when we are lost, the power to know what is in our hearts before we even say the words, forgive me, and the celebration that comes when we simply step on the property without having to prove ourselves repentant. This is our forgiving God. But I could also call it the story of our reconciling God. To reconcile is to bring back together. And this is what God seeks to do with the older son. God doesn't berate the older son for his lack of generosity or the judgment of his brother. God doesn't judge the older son for his ungratefulness for all that God has and will give him. Rather, God reminds the son that there is enough of God to go around. There is no shortage of God's presence or God's generosity. The father had lost the older son and hadn't even realized it right in his own home and seeks to reconcile, bring back together, reconcile himself with his son. And so God reassures the older son that God is always with him, with the son, and everything God has is also the son's. God reminds the older son that God expects us all to rejoice when one person repents and returns to God. This is reconciliation, God's reconciliation, reminding us that we are all in this together, that the love of one is essential to, essential to the love of all, and that God's forgiveness is actually the beginning of our reconciliation with one another. In the Episcopal Church, we value reconciliation, and we actually have a special right for it, which is about your own repentance, confession, and absolution. Because asking God for forgiveness for your sins, including the sins of ingratitude and judgment, is a key step in reconciling yourself to one another through our reconciling God, who has the power to right and restore all relationships. While calling this the story of our loving God, our forgiving God, and our reconciling God, our, that's appropriate. It's all appropriate. And it does, these titles do indeed describe our God. I think I'd rather call the text the no-bath-required God. Now that's catchy, right? hmm Like a sign on the restaurant requiring shoes and a t-shirt, this gospel carries a sign that says, no bath required. A clergy friend of mine tells the story of a parishioner he calls Bob. Bob was in church for a friend's, my friend's sermon on this passage from the gospel of Luke. When Bob saw Pastor Mike in the receiving line after worship, Bob was agitated Mike pulled him to the side, and Bob asked, where was the bath? Where was the bath? I thought there was a bath in this story. Didn't the father make him take a bath before hugging him and kissing him? No, Bob, Mike replied. There is no bath in this story. But, but, but Bob said, he kept going, The son was covered in muck from working with the pigs, and he'd been living in the grime of a barn. What about the bath?" No, Bob, Mike replied. There is no bath in this story. And then Bob began to cry. I thought there was a bath. I thought he needed to wash before he put on the fancy robes and went to the party. I thought he needed to be clean before his father would love him again. Friends, there is no bath required. Our God doesn't make ourselves clean ourselves, clean up our acts, or dress all pretty before God embraces us in love with God's forgiveness and God's reconciling power to restore relationships God takes us as we are, where we are, with the barest whisper of forgive me in our hearts. The unclean parts of our lives are real. They exist through our actions and inactions, through the actions and inactions of others. But they are not the final reality. They cannot keep us from going home to God God welcomes us, all of us, the way we are, no matter where we've been. This, this is the title that I would choose. The story of our no-bath-required God. Amen.